We have major news in the way of staffing, tryouts, and stadiums. Plus, an American Association Eastern Division review. You don't want to miss this week on the Indy Ball Report podcast. All right, we're back again. Episode number 207 of the Indy Ball Report podcast. I'm Nick. He's future TV star Will Thompson because this will be up before 2 o'clock tomorrow. And I had to go ahead and toss that in there. But how are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I, I don't know about uh, I, I don't know about future TV star. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, I, I, I am excited, though. But I, I think we got a long way to go before you get to that point. I don't know about that. I mean, it starts with one, and then it grows from there. So, I mean, either way, it is... Uh, it's very cool what's going on with you, and I'm sure. I suppose we should probably mention it because now we've teased, and people are probably like, "What the hell are they talking about?" Which, to be fair, is no different than anything else we discuss in this show. But you know, yes. it'd be kind of cool. So I'm not going to take your thunder. I'll let you do all the uh, formal announcement on it, and then uh, we'll get into the actual show part of the show. But you know, before that, yeah. more important matters have to take precedent. You're a basketball fan, college basketball fan. I, I do a lot of Broadcasting for basketball at school, I'm at, I'm at Hofstra, and uh, uh, they're one win away from uh, the regular season title in the CAA. They're playing Northeastern on Saturday at 2 o'clock. They were able to strike a deal with MSG for the, for the last regular season game. So uh, I'll be doing color on MSG Network for, for Hofstra versus Northeastern tomorrow. So if you're in the New York market, yeah, definitely and like basketball and mid-major basketball and aboard, feel free to tune in because you'll hear – my voice talking about basketball and there will not be any independently baseball talk on there, but, uh, but if, if you do like college basketball, I'll be talking a lot, plenty of basketball then as, as well. So, so in other words, if you're in the greater New York area and you listen to this show and then it gets to be about two o'clock on the day it comes out, meaning the 25th and you decide, you know what? I, I need to hear more of at least half of this duo. Tune into MSG, and then you can watch Northeastern play Hofstra, and presumably Northeastern lose. So that that that's the plan. That, that's the plan. If if Northeastern were to win the game, I'll just say something went horribly wrong. Then we got to go ahead and talk to the script writers because they got it wrong. We need some rewrites. Exactly. Exactly. Then so, something went went very wrong. What isn't going wrong is this show. Because now we've gotten the non-baseball section out of the way, right in the front. So that way, anyone that's finding this episode for the first time, yeah, they could be like, what, what is this show? I thought it's independent league baseball. It doesn't seem to be. Now they have a good introduction about what we're about here, which is to say, yeah, we talk about independent league baseball the majority of the time. But majority counts as 51%. So with that said, I suppose we should probably get into the uh, Intel news so that way we could do the review and... Uh, do some other stuff, and that starts in the Pioneer League with the Billings Mustangs, and they've announced their full staff. We talked about a couple weeks ago that Billy Horton was named the manager of the Mustangs. We know the rest of his staff now, and that is former Major League pitcher Dennis Rasmussen. He is going to be the pitching coach, a uh, 12-year Major League vet, mostly in the 80s and 90s. He had the same position in the Rays and Red Sox organizations, but most recently was the pitching coach with the Frederick Keys of the MLB Draft League. 
And the hitting coach will be Craig Maddox, if that name's familiar. That's because we had Craig on the show. Uh, I think it's like episode 57, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you can go back onto the website, anybarreport.com, go to the show, go to the episodes tab, interviews. It's one of the first ones up there. If you want to hear more about Craig and our conversation with him, he ran or runs a prospect dugout and he worked with the Giants organization in a similar role for their kind of rookie level Arizona complex uh, as a hitting instructor and he is a longtime independent league player as well won a championship with Gary a few years back I think it's probably close to eight now if not ten but even still a longtime independent league guy so they have definitely a mix here on the staff now it seems like they got some Giants guys because Horton I believe also comes from uh, Giants org at one point in time, but there seems to be a real good mix on this staff. So we report all the other completed staffs. We might as well do it for Billings too. That is the Mustang staff. Yeah, for sure. And I think on, on the end of, of Craig Maddox, again, a guy who's, a, who's been, who was an indie ball veteran as a player, specifically, at least I remember more for, for his time with the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Maddox, uh, you can kind of tell that this is kind of the route he was going to start to go um, as well because he did retire after uh, as a player after the 2019 season. But yeah, certainly good to see him get into, get into coaching in the indie ball ranks where, where he had played for, uh, for quite a few years. So I mean, if there's anybody who knows the the indie ball grind and, and also what those would also what those like higher leagues are looking for because a lot of these guys from the pioneer league yeah of course you're looking to get picked up by major league organizations but you're also looking to get to get a shot in the frontier league at some point you're looking to get a shot in the Atlantic. you're looking to get a shot in the american association craig maddox especially a guy who's been uh, who was recently played for quite a number of years uh, in both the american association and the Atlantic League certainly knows that game well, has contacts, knows what uh, knows what those teams and organizations are looking for, uh, especially at the plate. That is that is it definitely seems like a, a good hire as well. So I guess Rasmussen definitely very far away from from his playing career at this point, especially when you know when you get drafted by the California Angels. You know it's quite a while, quite a long time ago. But uh, yeah, I mean, he has has quite a lot of major league experience as well, and a uh, a, a coaching veteran uh, as well. So uh, yeah, it seems like two good hires. Very excited, to, very excited for for Craig though specifically. Yeah, no, definitely. I like Craig a lot. I think he's a pretty nice guy, and I think the hire is good for all the reasons you had mentioned uh, as well. He knows what to uh, look for both on a higher independent level and on the um, major league level too. The guy I'm going to focus on more, though, is Rasmussen just because he's that 12-year vet. So he has the experience. He knows how it goes in Major League Ball, how that process goes. So he has that mindset that he's able to put in to a lot of younger pitchers. Likewise, he's worked with the Reds, or Red Sox, rather, and the Rays. And so, as a result, he knows how these systems develop players. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Rays are one of those organizations where you always go, they seem to pull talent out of nothing. So mm-hmm. if if that's the case, then that has to be something with a development system. And so if you have a guy that's familiar with the development system, that's a very big positive. And what I also like is you could tell he has a lot of experience with younger guys because of that year in Frederick that he spent last year. So that tells me, okay, 
both of these guys, both uh, Maddox and Rasmussen, they're both very familiar with working with younger guys. They know how to relate to these guys. They know what the next level's like. So I do like that from a development standpoint. As far as a you know physically winning games perspective, I really don't know how much of a uh, effect a pitching and hitting coach have. You know, it's touch and go there. Even a ma- like a manager on this level, I would say has more of effect because you know you're picking your team, you're building your roster, you're doing all those little things. So yeah, obviously on that sense, the manager would have more uh, more of a direct impact in who wins and who loses. I'm not sure about these other kind of secondary roles, but I do like it from a player perspective. And I think that may help in getting more players to Billings. When you go look at the staff we have, they know what to do. They know how to get you to the next level. And that's obviously what most of the guys in the Pioneer League are looking for, is trying to get that next opportunity. So I definitely do like uh, the hirings across the board here, definitely. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a, I think it's a really strong three-man staff and you make a good point about about Rasmussen and uh and you know working with younger guys and as well I I mean you see at all levels of baseball guys looking into that race organization it doesn't matter whether it's coaches front office people uh, uh player development guys anybody that they're trying to see how they do things and you know to this point there hasn't really been many teams that have been able to duplicate to duplicate what they do but uh but i, I think yeah certainly a, a strong a very strong staff in billings yeah absolutely there and i will say just one point before we move on to uh the next couple pieces of news which will go by really quick there's not too much to discuss with them which is i live for a day we can see the california angels play the montreal expos without a dh and i think there is an i mean I, there's an outside possibility, I think. You can you can archive old MLB games if you'd like to. I mean, I suppose, but uh, did they become the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim before or after interleague play? Oh, going to be honest with you, I have no idea. See, and the way I was viewing this as a possibility is MLB expands, Montreal gets a team. The Angels get sold, they get rebranded back to the California Angels, and then Otani's pitching one day against the Expos. That was the most plausible route I saw, which I admit is still a very long shot, but that seemed to be the most plausible of routes. Again, though, that just sounds like it could be a lot of fun if we did that again, though. I think I think there could be, a, in a super, super dry week, maybe, maybe we do it again. I don't know. Uh, but... That'll be left for the future because we got to go on to the current here and now. And that is with York's new ballpark, which makes it sound a lot cooler and a lot more interesting than it really is. Because the reality is uh, People's Bank Park just got renamed, which I, in my notes, I'm realizing I wrote People's Bank Bank, which is clearly not the name of the ballpark. Uh, that would be, that'd be a pretty sick bank name. <laughs> People's Bank Bank. Double your investment. Hey, honey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to the People's Bank Bank to get to get a mortgage. <laughs> the what? The People's Bank Bank. Oh, Christ. Like, the, it'd be so redundant, but also very stupid. But now I kind of want it. Uh, either yeah, we, um, this, epi- this, this, this podcast is called the uh, Indie Ball Ball Report. The Indie Ball Report Podcast Podcast. Podcast pod. <laughs> There's your episode name. Podcast podcast. Podcast podcast. People are going to see that pop up in the feed and go, what the hell are they up to now? It's 
gonna be oh like that. God. It's gonna be like that meme of the cat in the overalls looking over the snowbank. Like, what are they up to? What they What they doing over there? <laughs> exactly. Uh, either way, the People's Bank uh, Ballpark is now Wellspan Health Park. Uh, Wellspan is just the new title one. It looks like People's Bank just chose not to renew because of, in the release there was a line from, uh, I guess, the director of the company or one of the uh, managers of the company that wished Wellspan well, which I was like, come on, a bit redundant on the phrasing here, even if it is proper English. Either way, uh, York's got a new title sponsor. I really don't think this has any sort of tangible effect, but hey, it's a thing. It was a very slow week. We're going to take what we get. Yeah, I mean, beyond the, uh, new beyond the, front. the hilarious jokes, yeah, b- beyond the hilarious jokes, I think, uh, you know, it's a name change. It exactly. is what it is. There's, there's not much else to it. Other things that are pretty minor because we don't have any details and there's not much to discuss about them is that Jackals have a tryout. This is something they didn't even promote. It just happened to be on their website and I started scrolling through, so I clicked on it. Uh, May 1st at Hinchcliffe Stadium, $100 cost, starts at 8 a.m. No other details really there. So, uh, yeah, if you want to try out, there you go. Mark May 1st in your calendar. It's 100 bucks. I assume it's a full day tryout. I assume it's the same rules we always see, which is like no seeds, no metal spikes, drills, and then game. I assume that's how it's going to work. That's how most of these work. But obviously that will be kind of at the discretion of uh, PJ Phillips, his staff, and Bobby Jones. So uh, that's make of that what you will. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. I mean, again, every every team's gonna have these, but yeah. I don't know if you, you. I tell you what, if you if you want to be, uh, if you really want to say like, hey, like, I wonder what's going on at Hinchcliffe Stadium, and like, I wonder what these dimensions are that nobody really knows about, and you want to go up close and report and be a source, go ahead. I I won't explicitly tell you to do it, but then again, I'm also not gonna. T- I'm also not gonna tell you not to do it. Exactly. Go pay a hundred dollars and then report back to us on uh, on the condition of this field and the and the dimensions. Don't ask us for a reimbursement though, because we will not reimburse you for it. Bingo. But if you'd like to do it, that's up to you. We'll use your name and invite you on to tell us about it, but that's about the best you're gonna get. <laughs> Look, we can pay you through exposure. Exactly. Has anyone ever in a creative field said, you know what, this pay by exposure deal is a great opportunity for me, especially when the person that's offering the exposure has like a wide cast of 2,000 people? Yeah, no. Okay, good. Because I, because some people I know believe that you can eat exposure and believe that that is uh, good in lieu of payment. Uh, I would disagree with those people, you sound like someone that's been offered to work in exchange for money. They offered exposure instead. You seem like you have that kind of an experience. I mean, everyone has. <laughs> and it's just not a real thing. Like, it's like I, I don't need to pad my resume but, that much. But, I'm not but, that then, it, but then again, don't Super Bowl performers, like at halftime, don't, get, do, don't they not get paid? That is true. All that is out of pocket. But I mean, I'd also say... The difference between doing like a college game for free and doing the Super Bowl halftime for free is rather significant. I I would say so, yes. I mean, one, you're getting easily tens of millions of eyes, 
the other one you're getting like tens of thousands of eyes so i mean there's a scaling difference here you know that's just all ancillary what is important is we finally have another member of this silver anniversary team for the atlantic lake last week I don't think we had one announced. I, we went over Glenn Murray, but that's because he was announced after we finished recording the week before that. So we finally did get one. It was announced on Thursday. So my theory on it being Tuesdays and Thursdays getting these things may still be right. But uh, it seems more random than anything else. Either way, the latest member of the team is someone that all Somerset Patriot fans will know and probably love in Jeff Nettles. He is the first infielder to join the team as Patriot fans well known don't need me to tell. Uh, he spent nine seasons with Somerset 03 to 2012, three-time champion 03, 05, 09, two-time Atlantic League Championship Series MVP 03 and 09, only player to have multiple series MVPs. <coughs> He was the first player to reach 1,000 hits, a seven-time All-Star, four-time postseason All-Star, first all-time in RBIs with 667, and second all-time in home runs with 154, second only to the aforementioned Glenn Murray, who sits at 156. So really, you know, if we think Jeff Nettles could pop three more, he could come back, you know, I don't know, play for Long Island, because that'd be fun, hit three home runs and then leave. He could do that and uh, take that title too, but... Seeing as that's pretty doubtful, that's where the accolades stand. Jeff Nettles on the team, second batter. He joins Glenn Murray, Tim Kane, and Mike Guyfoyle uh, on this team so far. I'll let the Somerset Patriot fan tell you more about Jeff Nettles. Oh, Jeff Jeff Nettles, such a great baseball player. I mean, he's a, a, a Somerset Patriots legend, certainly one of the greatest players to ever play in the Atlantic League, uh, for sure. Uh of course, the th winning the three titles speaks for itself. He was a, a postseason hero as well, uh, and, and the the accolades uh, speak for itself. But I, I think that um, yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he was in Somerset for nine seasons, so he he is a legend and uh, a complete no brainer for for this uh, for this team. Um, and you know, if, uh, at least. At least when I was when I was definitely younger, like Nettles was always that staple in the middle of the in the middle of the Patriots lineup, who was always making an impact. So Jeff Nettles just I mean one of the best players to ever play in the Atlantic League. Uh, the again the, the numbers and of course the uh, the RBI king and just just as you mentioned Nick a little bit just a, a close second. Uh, in career home runs, uh, but yeah, Nettles just was such a good player um, and was a complete no-brainer uh, for this list. And if honestly, if he wasn't on this list, I would have, you know, started a riot. And, yeah. But no, and nobody wants that. So uh, yeah, so very glad he's getting the recognition. But yeah, Jeff Nettles is just awesome player. Yeah, and a 283 lifetime hitter as well. A uh, guy that, like you said, was clutch. He, he showed up when it mattered. And I think to be safely put as one of the marketable faces of the Atlantic League for a long period of time as well, which, you know, is part of the reason why we're doing this list or why not we're doing this, but the league's doing this list. And uh, overall, it just he's the kind of guy that deserves to be on here, a guy that all the Atlantic League fans know, but probably not as many baseball fans know, which is a shame in a sense, because, I mean, the guy is I mean, you look at the accolades he has, like you said, they speak for themselves, but. It's pretty damn impressive. I mean, to put up a thousand hits in any league is very impressive. To do so in yeah. in under a decade is, you know, 
pretty damn good, especially when you're only playing about 120 games or so a year. It's it's kind of crazy when you think about it. So, and the fact that he played nine seasons, seven times he was an All Star. You know that those are some crazy numbers there. And he played nine seasons in just about half of them. He was a postseason All Star. So that tells you what you need to know. The guy he was a winner, and that is precisely what uh, what the list is for. So Jeff Nettles joins the team next week. We'll probably have another one or two to break down. But uh, until then, we wait. We have one last piece of news before we get to our American Association review. And this is a thing that came out in the beginning of the month. I've been kicking it around, waiting for a week where, you know, there's been less news to cover it. Because there really isn't too much of a development on it. But uh, I figure this week's as good as any for it. Uh, There's a proposed stadium in Leland, North Carolina. At first, it was thought to be for the Rangers affiliate. They were going to move, I believe it was, the Down East Ducks in Kingston to this new ballpark however that uh down east ducks team their lease extends to 2031 in their current ballpark and it's essentially come out through all sorts of other paperwork and through rangers organization down east organization that uh, this leland park would be for an independent club which is something we like to see brand new ballpark you know in a nice area that's something that's certainly appealing uh stating would seat about four thousand be built off of Highway 17, completed date would be probably 2026. Obviously, other approvals have to get done first before you can start construction and everything that goes along with it, but it would kind of fit the modern Atlantic League footprint with it being in North Carolina. And the thing that is interesting, at least to me, is where Leland is, because I've never heard of Leland. And apparently, it is but a mere 15, 20-minute drive from Wilmington, North Carolina, an area that I know has been a very varying interest over the years to varying independent leagues because it is a bit of a population area. It's a, I'd say a smaller city, yes, but it definitely fits kind of that, all right, there's some touristy stuff with the beaches along here. There's enough people here. You got some colleges around. You know, there's a lot here that says, you know, this could work. Currently, there's a Coastal Plains League team in Wilmington. That would remain regardless of whether or not this stadium gets built. So you just really add a professional team in that area. So it is something of note. It's something to watch. There really isn't much of a development on it. It's the kind of thing you check in every couple of months, see if there's something new on. But overall, just the thoughts on an extra Leland here, because I'd imagine it would have to go Atlantic League. I don't think Frontier would fit and be... Definitely outside the footprint of the other two uh, kind of core four leagues. So it seems like it would be a perfect fit for an Atlantic League team. 100%. I think I think this is this screams Atlantic League uh, all the way. This this would be a great opportunity. Again, you're trying to – you mentioned it's about just about 20 minutes away from, from Wellington, a, a stadium that would hold 4,000 people. Again, I think that's perfect to what you're looking for. Again, and with those modern minor league stadiums, you're looking for less seats uh, and more, like, things to do uh, in, in the stadium. And that's, that's definitely the trend that we're seeing, and that's what people want. Uh, but I think that it is really interesting that uh, that they're pretty adamant that, hey, this is – this is for an, an independent league team, which is certainly uh, certainly a good thing for Atlantic League purposes. Again, like this is something that, while you're probably not having a park ready until 2026, the, it is a great opportunity uh, for the league. Again, because uh, I mean, 
anything in North Carolina. Again, you're, you're talking about pretty much pretty much screens Atlantic League, um, and I mean a brand new stadium that can be put in for for an Atlantic League team is definitely a good thing. And, and I do find it very interesting that they definitely want it to be an independent league team. So I think it's very good news uh, for the Atlantic League and certainly very beginning stages of this and a long way to go, but really good news, I think, on this front. Uh, and we talk about a lot of possibilities as far as teams or whatever. I think this is among the more likely ones hmm. that we've talked about because, uh, you know, I mean, we if there's like some sort of unknown minor league baseball stadium, we'll probably talk about it. But this actually seems like a, a legitimate option for the Atlantic League come, uh, you know, a team that could start in a few years from now. How do, now, how does the league get there? And, with, of course, with the, the team in Frederick, I don't know. But, again, I think this also, uh, when when Frank Bolton in the past has talked about, hey, we, 12 teams is the number is the number that we're looking for. Um, and we're, we're trying to get to 12. Uh, and it's been a kind of wondering, well, what's, what's really the path here? Uh, this is, this could also help. Uh, this could also help trying to get there. Uh, of course, you know, there's, uh, you would have to hope that there's some sort of long-term solution in Frederick that I, that we kind of don't really know if there is or is not at this moment. Uh, but I think that this would be a good, a good step to try and get there. Uh, by by 2026, and again, I'm still not giving up on the possibility of Lowell. I won't give up on it because, again, there's nothing happening in that stadium. What else is there to do? You have no other options. Make it happen. Uh, but I, I think that uh, I think it, it's exciting, and to be honest with you, I think that um, this is definitely among the more likely ones that we've talked about, and I hope it happens. Um, and I hope the, the, the approval, the necessary approval happens because it would be, it would be exciting to have a new team and a new stadium, even if it's not, uh, even if it wouldn't be ready for a few years. Yeah, it definitely would be. Obviously, we're still just kind of in the proposal part of it. We're still in the theory part of it. It's not, you know, shovels aren't anywhere near the ground yet. So there's still a lot to be done here. But if you assume 26 is when it's supposed to be done by, so start of 26 season, Hagerstown coming in next year for 24. If mm-hmm. Frederick sticks around, it does create an odd number. I wouldn't necessarily, and I know this is going to kind of sound crazy, and it probably is, and, and there is no probably bad, it is bad for the brand. If they were to disappear for, say, the 24 or 25 season, come back for 26, I'm not sure if that's a plausible option. Maybe there's a Pulaski, uh, Virginia as a, or Polsky, Virginia as an option. There's talk about a team in Tennessee. You know, there's a bunch of rumor mill stuff that, quite frankly, isn't worth really reporting on because there's nothing really concrete on. You know, there's a bunch of different things here. If you grab one of those other teams, you could, in theory, you know, keep it level with Hagerstown coming in. Then if you add Leland, you know, then it's, you know, it is what it is. Plus, who's to say that every team that's here now remains here? We could lose somebody, too. So there's a, there's a lot of ways you can make the numbers work in the end. But more to the point and more importantly, I, I do think it's interesting. I like the location of it. It fits the footprint. It definitely kind of continues the southern trend of adding teams. I like it from that perspective. I don't necessarily, you know, 
have any other further thoughts on it because, like I said, I like the location. There isn't much concrete here yet. And, you know, maybe end of year we have more of a, a good idea as to what's happening. But as we've seen, you know, in High Point and Gastonia, it takes a lot to get a stadium built, get everything done. It takes a lot of approvals and everything that comes along with it. So uh, we will wait and see on that, I suppose. And as far as Lowell's concerned, I mean, I don't hear anything about Lowell. And I could really see a summer college team there. Because I just think from an expense perspective, it's more appealing to that group. But, I mean, I'd love to see an Atlantic League team there. It would definitely have more of an old school Atlantic League feel of put a team in New England, put a team in the North. That would be really cool to see. It would be really nice to see. But I just don't know how plausible it is. But, hey, anything could happen, right? Anything could happen, and I'm never going to give up hope. I, I was trying to, and I, I was, a, I was banging the drum on Frederick for for a while. I remember, and yeah. I, and even, and I, and it was disappointing when it didn't happen. But you never, you keep the faith, you never give up, and look, now you have Frederick in the Atlantic League, yay! At least for now. For now, we'll see. So, would you want to say a team called the Lowell Jackalopes? Would that be a good team name? Uh, I mean, you can't have another Jackalopes, but I do love the name Jack. See, I'm still waiting to be able to buy Jackalope merch, and this store just is not working. It's such a good name. It's such a good name. It is. Any case, is our American Association East review. It's the same thing we did for the Frontier League and the Atlantic League. We're doing it here. We're going in order. Uh, I forgot to write down the actual episode number, but I believe it's like 168, I want to say it is. We'll link it in the show notes, so that way you can find it easier. And you can follow along. It's the second half of that preview uh, because I guess we did the West first for, for whatever reason. But we're doing the East here. We're going in the same order team-wise as we did in that uh, preview. So we start off with the Chicago Dogs. They came into the year off of a 63-37, and 37, first in the North in 21. We kind of came in saying, all right, they definitely exceeded our expectations from that past season. Coming in, uh, we thought it'd be a good pitching team. The batting had some question marks. The depth would be sketchy. We figured, though, with an expanded playoff, this is a playoff team. And we were right in that regard. There was a step back. There was regression. They only won uh, 54 games. They lost 46 of them. But they did finish first in the East again. Ran off a tiebreaker. But still, and unfortunately for them, they picked uh, Milwaukee as their first-round opponent. And that was a poor decision as they got bounced in round one. Although it was a very good series, I will say. But even still, what are our overall impression of the Chicago Dogs from this past year? It's interesting because Chicago was just so hot at the beginning of the year. Mm. I mean, they were so good uh, to, to start the year. And I, I mean, to, to be honest with you, their pitching was, was ended up being quite good. Yeah. Uh, however, just, and, and the offense turned into kind of mediocre. Uh, you know, when you look at the, and when you look at those, those stats for the majority of the year, I mean, it, the, the bigger problem was the offense really kind of sputtered in the second half of the season. You know, they kind of limped down the stretch and they got to pick a team and they ended up picking, uh, Milwaukee and, uh, you know, they ended up picking Milwaukee over, over a Kane County or Cleburne or something like that. So, mm. uh, so didn't work. Uh, but yeah, I mean, 
the, their their big problem. I mean, their pitching was was pretty good for the most part this year. Yeah, was second in ERA as a team. Yeah, so they, I mean, they, they're so they were very good. Ten uh, shutouts but, too, led the league. Yeah, so they a great year pitching wise. However, um, uh, the offense ended, which ended up being mediocre. Yeah, pretty uh, middle of the pack. Pretty it ended up being pretty mediocre. Uh, Really started to sputter off towards the second half of the year again. Still, a good, still a good year for Chicago. I feel like we, uh, you know, I, I think because I'm trying to remember, was it 2020 where I thought they were going to be really good and they were awful? I believe so. If we did that right, yeah. yeah I think you said 2020, you really liked them, and then in yeah. 21, we both were like, "This is not a very good team." And then they came out and they, you know, lit everything on fire and were basically winning games at a two to one clip. And yes. uh, and that was kind of where we were at. And so we weren't really sure of what to make of this group. When I went back and listened to that episode, we were like, okay, it's, it's really the depth in the lineup where we're concerned about. Like, Krause was a guy we pointed out. I like Danny Mars. Harrison Smith was mentioned as well. There was a handful of guys who were like, okay, you know, they could do something. They're interesting, certainly, but... On a whole, the pitching's going to carry them. And frankly, we weren't wrong. The pitching was the best aspect of the team. It's just that, and the batting wasn't bad. It was just average. And the problem when you have good and average is if there's a team that is, you know, great and average, they're going to beat you. Or if they're just good and good, they're going to beat you. Or if your pitching has a bad day and they have a good batting day, if the bats aren't working for you at the same time, it's going to be rough. And so that's kind of the Chicago story of, like you said, they came out really hot in the beginning and then they cooled down and then it became a real kind of horse race for that first spot. Because I mean, when you look at the top three teams in the East, they all finished within a game of each other. I mean, King County finished with the same record and you know, it's, that was a really tight fight there. So when you get down to it, each playoff team in the East, they're kind of defined by their hot and their cold streaks and they really all lacked consistency, and Chicago was kind of the hallmark of it. They were just the ones that, I suppose you could say, got burned the least by it. To be honest with you, I'd compare them to, like, a, like Southern Maryland, the Atlantic League. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think they, the two of them had very similar seasons. Still a good year. I mean, still a good year for, for Chicago, certainly, but uh, they definitely fell off towards the towards the second half of the season, which... You know, naturally led into the postseason, even though it was a really good series with Milwaukee, as you said. Yeah, certainly. I I would say though that Southern Maryland overall as a team was a better team, though. Yeah, probably. So, uh, either way, though, we'll move on to uh, Cleburne, who was fifty four and forty six, second in the South in twenty one. Uh, this was a team that you know they had the whole managerial shift halfway through. They went to Logan Watkins, another guy we had on the show that was beginning of the year. You could just go back like four or five weeks and you could listen to that interview if you want uh so we weren't really sure what to expect coming into 22 we figured they're a playoff team on paper uh pitching depth there was going to be some issues namely with starters but the lineup overall was good they had a lot of guys there uh you will you were higher on them than i was i said i just have some personal doubt about them as a team i liked the players but i wasn't sure how they're going to come together as a team um Overall, they finished 500, 50 and 50, but that kind of doesn't tell the whole story, seeing as they went on like a torrent pace and won some absurd number in their last uh, 50 or so games. It was an incredible tear. 
I believe something along the lines of like 32 and 18 to finish off the year. They were the hottest team in indie ball, really, when you get down to it at the end of the year. Uh, and they really turned around what was a disastrous start. And uh, there's a lot that can be said about that. In the end, they wound up going out in the second round, the division final to Milwaukee. Milwaukee kind of handled them, to be honest, although there was, you know, some a decent amount of fight in the railroaders. But overall, uh, that was their season at a glance. Yeah, I think that, uh, and again, we talked a lot about it during the, during the Logan Watkins interview. I mean, this Cleburne team got off to a brutal, brutal start. And it is honestly incredible. They got to 500 uh, and were able to able to make the postseason. They got white hot down the stretch. Uh, and, you know, they they deserve a lot of credit uh, mm. for for the way that they that they ended up finishing the season. And, you know, it, it was interesting also to hear at that point that, hey, like there was a lot of problems in visas and such. I mean, but yeah. I mean, I tell you, when this when when this team came down the stretch, this offense was unbelievable. Down, down the stretch. Uh, and that is, you know, I mean, and nobody can really catch Kansas City in that regard offensively. Oh, yeah, but, well. Because they, they're in a class of their own, and we'll get to that next week. But, yeah. uh, but I think that, I mean, overall, Cleburne was, the, their offense really carried them in the second half of the year. Their pitching, it basically went from the, the their offense was white hot for a solid month and a half. The pitching went from awful to Good enough. Yeah, passable. To, to, to good enough, it'll keep you in games. And that was enough for Cleburne to just get red hot down the stretch, get into the postseason. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think that it, it was really impressive for Cleburne after literally being left for dead uh, to come back the way they did. And really that offense led the way for them. Yeah, it, it definitely did. When you look at their offensive numbers, they were the team that stole the most bases and wasn't particularly close. They clear Gary by about 40-some-odd bases there. They stole nearly 200, not quite Gastonia numbers, but even still 178 stolen bases in 100 games. It's still a decent amount of, of swiping bags. Home run-wise, they were third, 117 there, so averaging over a home run a game. Total bases, they were second. Obviously, they were... They were more in line with the rest of the league. Kansas City's just an extreme outlier. Uh, for example, Cleburne, like we're talking about, 1539 for their total basis, which, you know, is in line. Next closest after that is uh, a team we're going to talk about in a second in Kane County. You know, they're 15 behind. Winnipeg's about 20 behind. So, you know, it's all like right and close. Then you have Kansas City that just decides they're going to go off and they have over 200 more total bases than uh, Cleburne does. So they're just a statistical outlier in that regard. But as, as far as offense is concerned, they were a team that just managed to just keep on putting up runs, and that kind of kept bailing them out. They got a lot of doubles. They got a lot of extra base hits. They were really working that element of the game. So they were playing also kind of an exciting form of baseball, too. There wasn't a lot of just boring, you know, weighted out kind of uh, kind of games. They were They were doing things. Uh, quite frequently. And so, you know, overall, from that offense perspective, they were great. It's just like you said, well, the pitching is just, it wasn't good. And even when it became passable as a whole, it's still bottom half of the league. And ERA as a team of uh, 530, that's not good. 
An opponent batting average of nearly 260 isn't good either. Uh, better than some of these other teams, but it's still not great. They walked guys a lot too. They allowed a lot of hits. They gave up some home runs, which I believe is just kind of a condition of their ballpark too. So it's kind of live and die by the sword type of situation. But overall, they did look pretty decent uh, at times, and they got hot. And that's kind of the key thing here is half of baseball is just not falling out of contention. So that way, when you do get hot, you just get hot at the right time, and you can carry that for a while. And uh, Cleveland's kind of the example of that. They fought through a lot of adversity. They kept themselves alive. They did just enough to do it. Granted, they were also kind of helped by having some weaker teams in this division, one of which is up next to talk about. But overall, as a whole, they did what they needed to do to stay in the fight, and that's commendable. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah, just the way they, they were able to fight and scratch and claw down the stretch, too. I mean, honestly, to in what was, uh, wow, this is a really big, this is quite the battle between uh, Cleburne and, and Gary for this last spot. It ended up not even being remotely close. Okay. Uh, so, and so I, I think that, yeah, Cleburne deserves a lot of credit. Logan Watkins deserves a lot of credit for holding that team together. Yeah, definitely. And I will say even like what's more impressive is is even that fight for that fourth spot that kind of getting cleared up. For a while, it was very clear. It was like, okay, maybe Lake Country or Gary's going to get this spot. Like, Cleburne was out of it for, what would you say, like the first month and a half of the year? Like, we were ready to write them off because they were just not doing anything. They were spinning their tires. I mean, it took them a long time to get to 12 wins. And then they just kind of sat and then they turned it around. So, like I said, one of the hottest teams around. And, uh, yeah. Good on Logan Watkins for keeping that together. Uh, we go to another first-year manager in Gary. This is Lamar Rogers that took over for Greg Taggart. Obviously, a long-time guy. Now he's back in the association, but that's a, that's something for later times. Uh, Gary was 39 and 61, sixth in the North in 21. So not a good year at all. There was improvement, granted, not much. 42 and 58, fifth in the East in 21. So they got better. Not by much, but they got better. Obviously, missed the postseason. Uh, I believe we described the lineup. I forget if it was me or you that used the phrase barren wasteland of a lineup. Uh, but that was a phrase that was used. Not incorrectly, mind you. It is a barren wasteland and proved to be. We know that there's always a lot of younger players in Gary. Uh, speculation as to why that was was kind of a cap thing and also kind of harder to recruit players to Gary, Indiana. But either way, uh, we said there's no real power, no real batters in this lineup. There was a couple of guys that were interesting, maybe as contact hitters. And again, I think this is more of a condition of their ballpark. It's a tough hitter's ballpark for power. But even still, power is not just home runs, it's extra base hits. And you think, okay, well, if you hit gaps, even if you're slow as hell, you should be able to at least bring a double out of it, you know. But either way, uh, scarce on depth. Uh, young manager, we never know what to make of that, but there was like a couple of pitchers that were interesting too. But overall, we did not have any expectation from the scary team. No, I, I think we knew coming into the year kind of what they were going to be. Uh, and I guess all things considered, it wasn't terrible. Like it could have been worse if you were Gary, but because I mean, I, I ended up finishing with the third, third worst record in the league. Uh, wow, did I really say it was a barren wasteland of a lineup? I don't know if it was you or I that said it, but someone said it was a barren wasteland. It sounds wasteland. like something I would say, though. So yeah. I, 
We'll give like you a credit. Term I would use. Yeah. I'll take it. Uh, but wow, yeah. Work it into so the. I was, yeah, you got to work that into the broadcast tomorrow. Northeastern starting five is a barren wasteland of talent. See, as much as as much as I would like to do that, yeah. I can't. I, like, it's so funny, Nick, because I can be I can be so honest on like radio broadcast, and I just can't on, on TV broadcast. Once they point a camera at me, then all of a sudden, like, okay, hold up. Yeah, I, I I wish like I mean radio broadcast. I I am brutally honest, but I, I think uh, and that's that includes the other team and Oscar. Yeah. Then again, but Oscar is fifteen and two, so I don't I don't really there isn't that many bad things to say. Regardless, no, no one cares about Oscar back to independent league baseball. Uh, yeah, I, I think the I'm interested to see what Gary does this year because honestly, I don't I don't think there's honestly a lot about a lot to say about. Uh, about last year because there wasn't really a whole lot of talent and I guess they, they weren't awful, but, uh, but at some point, you know, they're going to have to start to, you, I want to, I'm not saying that they're going to be some sort of contender this year or that should be expected, but you would like to see some, some building blocks and you're, you're trying to build maybe closer to a 500 record and trying to, uh, trying to work back, uh, towards contention. Uh, if you're Gary. So I, I think that's what I'm kind of looking for uh, from them. Yeah, it was definitely n- not a good year, but the, it never was going to be. Yeah, I, I like how you compliment them by going, they weren't awful. That, like, that's they the, weren't. I mean, like, I guess what you're going for. Like, And I agree with you. Like, There was some redeeming qualities here. There were some guys here that were, were decent. And they had some guys get picked up as well too. So like I, I see exactly what you're saying, but it just is like such an odd compliment. It's just like, oh well, you're not totally ugly. You're like a five, you know. Like it just is such a weird, <laughs> weird way to compliment it, but yet it'd still be right. But yeah, like I, I agree with you though. They need to start building something here. It's year one under a new manager. It's a tough place to build a team around. So I, I get all the challenges and everything that comes along with it. But yeah, like we gotta start making some progress here. Third worst ERA in the league, you know. Whip wise, they had the third worst there. They they gave up some home runs too, which in that ballpark is kind of surprising that you gave up over a hundred home runs. Uh, strikeout wise, they didn't really strike anyone up. They were essentially just the third worst pitching team across the board. And when you look at batting wise, they're not really much better. You could very well argue they're the worst batting team because they had a team batting average of about. Uh, 255 on base percentage is under 340. You know, it just wasn't a good year batting wise by any real stretch. They stole bases, which is kind of good, but I mean, you also got thrown out 52 times. So that's not great either. They struck out 900 times, only team to get into the 900s too in that regard. So it just overall wasn't really working on both sides of the ball. So yeah, we got to start making some progress here. Uh, but there, there were some redeeming players on this team, so uh, better than we thought, but um, mm, not good. We go to Kane County now, 44 wins, 55 losses, fourth in the north in 21. They improved by about 10 games. They go to uh, 54 wins, 46 losses, second in the east. They got a first-round exit at the hands of Cleburne. They kind of got screwed by getting tossed to the hottest team in the league, and they kind of got dispatched. We said they were going to be a very top-heavy team, probably a weaker end of the playoff team. And as I said, there's about seven players of note on this team. 
and that's about it. And they're going to have to do all the work. Not entirely true, but also not entirely wrong because I, I think I'd be pretty fair in saying that Jimmy Kerrigan is like 80% of their offense this year. Yeah, I think that was, that was their main problem as far as what, what kept them from being really good. I mean, hey, look, they had a good year. They, they did. Um, and I think that, uh, they were, they were a solid team throughout the night. Kerrigan really carried them and, uh, really helped them. And they would not be in that spot without them. Unfortunately for Kane County. And, and I guess that kind of recipe, Nick, is yeah. that's what gets you in trouble in the postseason, right? Yeah. Uh, and in, in short, small samples. And it's, that's exactly what happened against a team like Cleburne, who, I mean, obviously not to beat a dead horse here, but it was a red-hot team coming in. So I think that it's, it was definitely a good year. I think overall it has to be looked at as a positive year for Kane County, though. Okay. Even though the, the postseason didn't go the way they wanted to, they were definitely disappointing year one. Uh, year one in the American Association, year two, and definitely uh, a good improvement for them. I mean, and they have a great fan base there, and you definitely needed to see improvement in year two, and that's exactly what you saw. Uh, I, I think overall it should be looked at as a very as a very good year, but I think you can see looking at, I guess, at, at how the team performed, you can see why come postseason time it was uh, a team that was not really built uh, for postseason success, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. It does make a lot of sense because really when you look at the batting, there are other guys in here too, but they're more just like your average level batter, nothing great. But in addition to Kerrigan, like Cornelius Randolph had a good year. Ernie De La Trinidad also was pretty solid. Uh, Busby was all right too. So there was some other guys, but Kerrigan was, in my opinion, the guy that probably should have been the MVP over Max Murphy. But that's a whole another argument for another time. Uh, either way, he was really the kind of like the main source of the offense there. And offensively, they were a decent team. Fourth in batting average, on um, base and slugging, they came in uh, more middle of the pack. I believe the fifth slot here. Obviously, they had some guys hitting, other guys not. So they were a decent enough team batting wise. Pitching wise was you know kind of a uh, kind of alright. I mean, they were fourth in. ERA, so not terrible, but I mean, even still being fourth in the ERA still has you have 472, so that's not, you know, great, but not terrible either. They were overall a pretty good team, eight shutouts too, so they had their moments, but it just didn't have enough. I think we were wrong about them being a weaker playoff team. They certainly were a good one. I think if they would have played Chicago, maybe we have a different outcome for them. I think that's probably a, uh, a much closer series, a much more even series. Now, of course, we're deprived of one of the better playoff series across indie ball by losing Chicago-Milwaukee, but even still, I think King County would have benefited from having that. And uh, overall, they were better. I think it was probably a learning year for the whole organization in year one. Year two, they really start to apply that. And if they could even just get four games better in the in 23, then we have ourselves a very, very interesting team. And Again, I don't know who's going to be able to come back. I don't know who's going to get signed. I don't know that whole layout, and we won't know until May when we do our our uh, 23 preview. But this team did take a lot of steps forward. There is a lot to like about it going forward. And with George Samus at the helm, I'm inclined to believe that they're going to continue to get better. It's just they kind of have an uphill climb. Exactly. Yeah, it's just they have that uphill climb with Chicago and Milwaukee around. And, you know, we talked to Anthony Barone before, and, 
you know, we know the kind of manager he is. We know the kind of guy he is. And he's, you know, he gets a lot of his players. I mean, he's in all his seasons, he pushes the playoffs. He gets in. He does a lot there. He's had a lot of success. So when you look at that, you kind of expect them to continue with that. You expect Cleburne to be better. They kind of figured their issues out. You expect Chicago to always be there. That's three spots off the bat that you kind of chalk up, which means now you're fighting with a lot of other teams for that final spot. So it's uh, it'll be an uphill battle for Kane, definitely. But, you know, there's still a lot of positives to take away. Agreed. I think a lot of positives and overall definitely a good year for, for Kane County. Absolutely. And with that, we go to Lake Country because we're not going to try the uh, name of where they're actually playing out of their city name because that's just not going to work. So you don't want to you don't want to give it a, you don't want to give it a whirl. We're not going to give it a whirl. If you want to try to pronounce Owenomowak, then feel free to. But I'm going to leave it at that attempt. Yeah, I'm I'm going to leave I'll leave it to that. All right. So then we're going to continue to call it Lake Country. They didn't play in 21 because they were new for 22. Uh, coming in, we said there's some boomer bus players here. There's pitching concerns. And uh, we're just looking for positives. That's the way we framed it. They definitely suffered from visa issues. That was for certain. They lost some players to that. Uh, and that's probably why they only won 34 games and they lost 66 games. They finished sixth in the East. They missed the postseason. Uh, not a particularly great year, although there were moments where they looked all right. I think there's definitely some positives to take away from it. And overall, as a whole, I think we can definitely, you know, expect some improvement. I just uh, don't know where it's going to come from. Well, that's a hell of a quote. Yeah, we can expect it, but it's it's going to come. I just don't know where it's coming from. Quote Nick Firestone. I think we can expect some improvement, but I don't know where it's going to come from. <laughs> so decisive. Yeah. So definitive. Um, look, I, I think the positive I can bring up is that they weren't bad at the beginning of the year. Like they were, they were 500 team for a while and then just stopped winning games the last three months of the year. Uh, but I think in particular, I mean, you mentioned the pitching concerns, Nick. I, that's the majority here. They were by far the worst, uh, team. The, the, they were by far the worst pitching staff in the league. By far worse than Sioux Falls, who also won 33 games this year. And of course, we'll, we'll talk about more about that next week. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think, yeah, just, it's, and it's not to be, it's always a common problem for teams in their first year in existence, indie ball wise, uh, to, struggle with supplying enough arms to get you through the year. I think that's the I think that was the big problem for Lake Country this year. Uh and it's something that they'll get better at. Uh I, I think I would ex- I would also despite your funny quote, Nick, yeah. I, I would also agree that I think some improvement can be expected. Um but it's gotta it's gotta come with uh su- supplying better arms. Uh, and you know the the offense had its bright spots. They had their moments, but uh, yeah, the pitching was just too bad, really, to uh, to have any to have any sort of thought of being a competitive ball club. Yeah, that's where it comes down to. Is you mentioned pitching six five six is how that ERA reads. Uh, six fifty six. That's not good. And when the opponents are hitting two eighty six off of you. Uh, we don't really need to go into any more uh, detail uh, as to why they didn't really succeed in a 1.7 whip isn't good. 
when they're nearly slugging 500% off of you. It's not good. A lot of it's just not good here. I mean, there was guys like TJ Bennett that I thought were really solid for them this past year. So, you know, you get, and obviously now TJ just signed with High Point this past week, so he won't be back. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot here where, you know, I look and I say there, there's something here. It's just, they need to do better, but it's year one. There were pause to take away from it, build on them, get ready to go. Year two, make a competitive run for that fourth spot. If they can hang around until like, say August in real dead heat, like legit contention for the four. I'm not talking like mathematically they can, they just need a little bit of help. Like actually they're within three games of that spot into say the middle of August. I would call it a successful season for them. I would agree with that. I, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that's the realistic, that's the realistic goal for them this year. I would say. Exactly. Let's, let's, we got year one out of the way. We saw they can play baseball. Let's go ahead and prove that we can play competitive baseball. And then year three, playoffs. Let's run it like that. Boom. Straight like that. Exactly. Let's just incremental improvement. But one team that doesn't need incremental improvement is the last team we're going to talk about today. And the Milwaukee Milkmen. They were 59-41, third in the north in 21. They regressed a bit. 53-47, third in the east in 22. But they managed to make the championship game and play one of the best games we've seen, probably the best series of the year, against the future champion Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks. They lost, obviously, an epic extra-inning thriller. A fantastic series, and hearing Anthony Barone talk about that, too. Uh, go back and check out that interview. It's really a good interview, that one, as well as hearing us talk about that series. All in all, fantastic series that was. I can't get over that, but... Coming into the year, uh, to say we were high on Milwaukee would be an extreme understatement, as just in about the five-minute segment we gave them on the preview, we said they replaced a lot of missing pieces, an extremely deep lineup, lethal at multiple spots, lost a lot but replaced most, elite-level offense, very deep pitching, a championship contender, upgraded the team, best in the East. I wouldn't say we were that far off on everything. Obviously, regular season-wise, they finished about a game back of being in that uh, number one spot. But in the end, they came out of the East. They were very clearly a championship contender as they were quite literally one run away from winning it. And uh, yeah, their bullpen was very good. Pitching-wise, they were very good. And they had some good bats, too. Yeah, I think that were they as... It's funny because they... They reached the final destination of where we thought they were going to go, mm. but just not the path we thought they were going to take to get to get there. Yeah. Um. And I mean, for the most part, like this year, it was um statistically a, a pretty mediocre team. That hey, there's a veteran group that knew how to win, win some close games, and uh, and you know, come postseason time, they look they. They, they beat, of course, their rivals, uh, and then were able to finally be the ones to take down a, a Red Hot Cleburne team. And yeah, that series against Fargo Moorhead, really just legendary and one for the books, uh, and, and one that people will not soon forget. And it was, it was such a good series. And, um, and yeah, I have to say, I mean, it, overall, like it was, it was a case of, 
they they weren't great in the regular season, but they got hot at the right time. Again, they, uh, they the talent finally started to break out at the perfect time, right at the postseason, uh, and they and they they put together an epic series against against Fargo Moorhead. I think that's the only really word you can use to describe it, which is just complete, totally epic. And uh, and is you know at the end of the day this this is the standard of success that has been that since Anthony Barone has taken over in Milwaukee that has become expected with this team um, that they're going to be in the mix for a championship every season and you, you wouldn't have believed it if you really watched them the regular season but eventually they got to where they needed to go um, and the talent started to really mold together at the perfect time. Uh, and yeah, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. And getting, of course, I mean, one run away from, I mean, you know, a couple plays here and there in that last game, and they we could be talking about Milwaukee getting red hot and winning the championship. Um, so I think that uh, they're just a remarkable. That team is just a remarkable uh, example of consistent success in indie ball, um, and specifically, and specifically in the American Association, and, and really in the East Division, the only one that's been consistently good. Uh, and you know, and I know the divisions are a little bit new in the sense of being kind of being realigned a little bit. But uh, with those teams kind of in the northern part, um, uh, they they're really the ones that have been remarkably consistent, uh, and yeah, they're going to be they're they're a championship contender really. Uh, Pretty much every season, and they, they showed why. Uh, once again, even if the even if the up, the regular season was a bit up and down, but hey, they got they got hot in the postseason. They won some big games and nearly nearly won it all. Yeah, exactly. And it was really their bullpen that was the strong part from the pitching aspect of it. They had some really good arms, and they added Peyton Gray back into the mix too, which really helped as well. I would say the thing with Milwaukee is. There's other consistently good teams here, but they're not consistently good in both the regular and postseason. And that's the critical thing here. You have a team like Chicago, which I think your Southern Maryland comparison from earlier does speak to a really good regular season team, consistently good. Then we get to the postseason, and it's a different team, or at least a bad outcome. And sometimes it's just you ran into a better team. Sometimes you ran into a hot team. Sometimes it's just you weren't that good, but for whatever reason, they can't seem to really put it together and make a run in the playoffs. That's something they just cannot do. But they're consistently a solid team. You have other examples of teams that do well when they get to the postseason. But as far as in the East goes, Milwaukee is the one team that you go, they're always in contention for a regular season title. And they're always in contention for a championship. And they just keep doing it, and they keep adding and fixing pieces. I mean... Like, we didn't even mention the fact they lost a back-to-back MVP at Adam Brett Walker, a guy that, quite frankly, is going to be in the American Association Hall of Fame one day, probably later than sooner, but he's still going to wind up there. And their response to that was being the second-best batting team in the league with, again, statistical outlier Kansas City being the only team above them. And even there, yeah, they're ahead of them in categories, but it's not absurdly so. And you want to look at the individual pieces of the uh, Milkmen team. And it just is, it's a unit, really, when you get down to it. Like, yeah, they played 500 ball towards the end. But even still, I mean, you look at a guy like Hector Sanchez, only got 19 games there, still lit it on fire. Brian Torres is a guy that hit nearly 400 and was hitting 400 for a large part of the season. 
You have other guys in there. Uh, Dylan Kelly, who played 61 games, looked pretty damn good for them. Miguel Gomez played some games in there, too. He looked good there, too. You look through here, there's not even that much consistency among guys in the lineup. It's just whoever got in played well. In fact, Aaron Hill was the only 100-game player, and he still hit 280 across 100 games. That's That's pretty good. So you look across the board here and you just had a bunch of guys that were either contributing home runs, they were contributing just hits, they were getting on base, they were doing what they had to do. And that speaks volumes about this team and it speaks volumes overall about the way they're coaching, the way they were assembled too. And, you know, I, it's hard to be, you know, that critical of this team because uh, they did a lot right even if they fell a little, little bit short at the end. Yeah, I agree, and uh, and yeah, it was a team that, uh, that definitely faced some adversity, but eventually they got to they they got to where they needed to go in the end, and you know they deserve uh, deserve a lot of credit for it. Absolutely. So on that note, that will end our American Association uh, review for the Eastern Division. Next week we'll come back with the West. The only thing we had to really discuss was who we each thought was coming out of the East. We both had Milwaukee coming out of the East. We both had him playing Kansas City to spoil next week. And, uh, Will, you had Milwaukee in five. So you were almost right, but not quite there. I had Kansas City so in five. Yeah. Which, to be fair, walking into the postseason, Kansas City in five would have been a pretty decent bet. Of course, Fargo, you know, did Fargo things. So there's that. Uh, neither one of us had an MVP from the East. So we'll wait till next week to discuss that. We only one of us actually had a player award winner out of the East, and that was Michael Bowden for you out of Chicago. You had him for pitcher of the year. Obviously, that didn't happen. Max Hall from Kansas City uh, won pitcher of the year, and we'll talk about those awards next week because they're all in the West. So with that, uh, it will conclude our show for the week. Uh, I guess with that, we go to the plugs and we'll get out of here. If you want to find the show, you can do so on TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, all the major platforms. Rate, review, subscribe if you can. Help the show grow. You know the deal. Just do that. Uh, check out the website. We have a book review of There's a Bulldozer on Home Plate, as well as a bonus episode on the feed. Also a review of There's a Bulldozer on Home Plate. Check those out when you get a chance. Uh, decent book. You can hear the full thoughts on those, so we won't go into them all too much there. Uh, likewise, that's the website, IndieBarReport.com. And uh, you can find show notes there as well. You can find us on social media at IndieBallPod on Twitter and at ALPB underscore news and IndieBallReport on Instagram. Uh, that said, do we have anything else left to add? Um... Hmm. He's I, I, really, I, I usually, I usually, oh, um, oh man, I, I usually have something on my mind that I'm ready to go with, but let me think. I, I'll give you one. Uh, the New Jersey Devils, when they're down one goal with like five minutes left in the game, I just never have a doubt they're going to win the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I just, because yesterday, uh, yesterday in their game, they 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 give up a goal with like four minutes left. Uh, they they give up a goal against against the Kings. They were down. Uh, they scored. The Kings scored with like I, I think it was Kopitar scored with like 
like four minutes left, and I was kind of just like, okay, the Devils will find a way to win, and they did. It was cool, and uh, they might be the best overtime team like in the history of the NHL. They have to be. Like they just don't lose an overtime. It doesn't happen. So, uh, and so, and oh, by the way, actually, you know what? This is what my last thing, the thing, thing to add will be. Three on three overtime is the greatest thing the NHL has ever done. It is so much fun, and it because nobody wants to see shootouts, and it it provides less shootouts and way more excitement, and it gives the uh, a, a better chance of those electric game-winning goals that everyone loves. Uh, so I that are that are way better than than shootouts. Like obviously shootouts are necessary, but uh, because you don't want guys you know dropping dead in in an in an eighty-two game season. But uh, three on three overtime, I am so glad that that's what the that the NHL uh, did that because it is so much fun. That'll be my thing to add. I agree with the three-on-three. I think it's fun, although it was more fun before people started coaching it. When it was just like the wild running gun, that was a lot more fun. That said, I would like to see it go to 10 minutes from five because I really don't like shootouts. I'll also say, as far as New Jersey's concerned, they're on the same shit that the Rangers were on last year, where it's just like they're just kind of happy to be here. They're exceeding expectations, so they're playing without any pressure, and uh, it's working really well for them, and it makes me upset, but... Uh, that that's an issue that'll get sorted out. Nick, Nick, you do know that there is a collision course for a for a first round playoff series, right? Yeah, I know. I'm not thrilled about this shit. It's the same feeling I had when Duke played UNC. Not quite as bad because Duke UNC in a Final Four doesn't happen, and I'm still annoyed about that. By the way, because of the officiating and that. And normally, I don't like complaining about officiating because you shouldn't put yourself in a position where officiating matters. But every once in a while. The officiating takes center stage, say that Final Four game, or perhaps a nice February game against Virginia. I was about to bring it up if you didn't. Yeah, that that one's still annoying. I guess that'll be my thing. Like, I don't have anything else really left to uh, to add. But what was it about two weeks ago where Flips yeah. fouled under the basket with point two on the clock, and the decision is made because it's called a foul, and then it's reviewed. And then there's no foul and there's no time on the clock because it went from it's a foul. We just need to see what the clock's at to it's a foul, but there's no time on the clock. Despite it very clearly being posted above the basket, you could see him getting his hand hit at point two and the call is made, you know, so he should be shooting two to end that game because it's tied at this point to send it to overtime. And then it, the decision that's left after the game was it wasn't a foul at all, from which I'm not a terribly large basketball fan. I have a general understanding of the rules. I'll watch, you know, college throughout the year, but I'm not overly into it. And I don't really watch the NBA. But my understanding is if you get hit on the hand when you're going up for a shot, that's a foul. And you should shoot, too. But it's not just my understanding. It's the ACC's because then a couple hours later they go, our bad. Here's our statement saying, sorry, our bad. Are we understand? Yeah. And it, it, it's a, it's be one thing if it was like a random loss that wouldn't affect Duke seeding at all. Then I'd be like, okay, it is what it is. But it was against the number six team in the country. That's a line jumper. That moves you from, say, a, on the road. Yeah. On the road, hostile environment. And it takes you from, and I believe we were coming off the UNC or coming off the Miami loss following the UNC game. But. It it's a such a critical juncture there because at that point we we're like okay we're probably gonna wind up as a six seed but you win that game all of a sudden 
a four seed still in play at that point. Now we're looking more like, okay, probably a six or a seven. And it's like, you so screwed us on this that an apology statement doesn't mean anything to me. It'd be one thing if it's like, okay, if it's just between going to overtime and not going to overtime, because at least there's no guarantees you would win or not. And obviously, Flips does to make those free throws. He has to make one of two, which I refuse to believe if he goes to the line with the chance to win the game, he's not making at least one. Like, that is a stolen win, essentially. Because you sent it to overtime, they lost in overtime, and it just, that one bothers me a lot because of the ramification of that call. And I get it, officials are human, I get the whole thing. But even still, it's just such a horrific call that they took about five minutes to review, ten minutes to review, and they still got it wrong. And just that effect, that's what bothers me, is that it has such a ripple effect on the Duke season that it could very realistically be the difference between making a deeper March run, even winning a round or two, and going out in the first or second round. And that that's what bothers me the most about it. And I'm I'm obviously no Duke sympathizer, as you know. Well, no, we um, know you're part of the Brotherhood. You tried to hide it, but we know it. Anyway, uh, here's the thing, because Rutgers had a very similar game earlier in the year where Ohio State, the player clearly stepped out of bounds before hitting a game-winning three. And the Big Ten had there was a similar thing where the Big Ten put a statement saying we screwed up. I am much more sympathetic to a ref saying, you know what, I I missed the call, yeah. I missed it, and because you know what, it happens. You you missed the call, and you know what, at the end of the day, you're right. You can't put the game in a position where the refs are, are determining the outcome of the game. The problem with this, the difference with this is, you can make whatever call you want on the floor. They went to replay, and I was, and admittedly, like I was, I think I was watching like another game, like on my big TV, and like on the, the smaller TV was the Duke game, so like it, it was muted, so like I was just, I was watching the replay, and I'm like, oh, cool, he got fouled in point two. I'm like, all right, so they're, they're like, all right, cool, like, and then I, and then I wait, and then like I just see like the crowd going crazy. I'm like, wait, hold on, what? And then I'm like, I'm like, and I'm like checking Twitter. I'm like, did I miss something here? Like, it clearly looks like he got fouled with point, like. How do you go to replay and you can freeze frame it? Like it's 2023. You have the technology to just be like, okay, where is the contact on the hand? Okay. Can't talk. Hand, uh, we got like hand on hand there. Stop it. Point two done. That's it. That's the end. There's nothing else to say. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't bewildered how they, how they missed that call. And you're right. It mean it, that, that probably bumps up Duke at least a seat or two. Uh, getting and they just don't and they don't have that many opportunities to get a good win of that caliber and the way the ACC is this year and I do want to fit in though before we end yeah North Carolina sucks yeah like this the thing like all the everyone was calling all the Duke fans saying this you know like biased all that but we all knew we watched this North Carolina team we know what they are they weren't good they had a really hot run in March and admittedly, that's all you really need. You just need to get to the dance. But they weren't a good team. They're not a good team. There is no talent here. You're going to sit here and tell me that Armando Baycott and Leaky Black are, like, leading Who the can't charge? Shoot. Yeah. Who can't shoot? Brandon Manick was that whole run last year. That's the reality. Yeah. And that team is nothing without Manick. Yeah. Which, can we just say how funny it is that at points in the game that Hubert Davis just decides, you know what? Baycott's done enough tonight. We're not going to give him the ball anymore. 
Meanwhile, you have a guy that can match up with a lot of guys down low and can still get points or at the very least draw fouls effectively. He can keep you in a game, you know, or at least keep you on life support. And you're just like, take him out. Let's let Leaky just shoot these things. And they can't knock down open threes either. That's what's funny. They'll hit some random ass bullshit three with like three guys in his face or something. But if you give him a wide open three, it's just rim, rim, rim all day. It's, they're such a weird team. And then the coaching staff has the gall to bitch and moan about we're not getting enough foul calls. Like, oh, stop. Please, please. Just stop. And, and I tell you what, and I, and I can't, here's what, and I'm going to be blatantly honest here, Nick. Yeah. Everyone keeps talking about North Carolina as a bubble team. I don't think they even deserve to be on, on the bubble. I they really shouldn't. don't. They, yeah. they, if they were not, if their name wasn't the North Carolina Tar Hills, they would not be on the bubble. And they oh, can't, yeah. like, they, they literally have no right to be on the bubble. They have no quad one wins. Not one. There is no argument you could make for them to, to for them to get into the tournament. Like, I just there is none, and uh, I would rather put in like I, I would. I think there are there are many teams that are that are way more deserving than North Carolina, who does not have a quad one victory. How do you? I don't understand how they're on the bubble. I really don't get it at all. Reputation and the fact they won and they uh, made the national championship game last year. That that's how they're on the bubble. I mean, you take their resume and you put, like, say, Texas A&M in their name spot, or you put, like, say, San Diego State in their name spot, all of a sudden, we're not even discussing it, but because it's UNC, you know, we're going to discuss it now. And the only way I could reasonably see them being a tournament team is if they got hot and won, like, say, I don't even know how many games they got left, but let's say they win two or three of their remaining ones. And they wound up making the ACC championship game. Then I could say, all right, well, you know, there's something there. Maybe. But Maybe. even then, it's like, this is a scratch team. This should be like first four in, you know, that's, uh, this should not be, you know. This- and you'd probably have to have like a, you would, and in that ACC tournament run, you would have to have like a convincing win over UVA or something. Yeah. Like, you you need a meaningful win, which, can we just talk about how pathetic it is that Pitt's atop this conference at the moment? Dude, Pitt is like a, that that is a grown team. Like, that is a team of adults playing in college basketball. I don't, look, and, and it's the transfer portal, it is what it is. But, yeah. like, I, I and like, there's rules, there's rules that allow it. But at the end of the day, like, that is a team that, I mean, you have, like, they. I love the comparison of how they're, like, way older than the Oklahoma City Thunder. <laughs> I can't wait till the COVID like eligibility stuff is done, and like, we can get back to like normal basketball, please. Why? Because we don't need twenty-six-year-olds playing college ball. We do not. No, like Memphis. Memphis's best player is twenty-six. <laughs> He's twenty-six. Like I kind of feel like if you're older than me, you should be the one of the best players in college basketball because you should just be physically dominant over the other people around you. Yeah, I mean, like, come on, like it's. I can't wait. I think we're probably what like next year is probably like the last year of like the COVID eligibility guys. So probably. hopefully it gets back. To, hopefully it gets back to somewhat normal where you get back to your like your red shirts and stuff like that. I, the portal. I, like I like I like the transfer portal personally. I like yeah. transfer portal nil. I'm good with all that. Just like I, but I'm not a fan of 26 year old playing college basketball. Sorry. We need to have that middle tier. We need an ECHL version of basketball for uh, for these 26 year olds that aren't good enough to hack it anywhere else. 
It's called work. It's called getting a real job. <laughs> it's called called selling insurance, or whatever, whatever, whatever makes their heart happy. Just not playing collegiate basketball against guys who are nineteen. What if playing collegiate basketball against like UC Santa Barbara is what makes them happy? True. I guess. I guess that's a. I guess that's a fair point. But you know, I'm just not that sympathetic to it. Hmm. So thus concludes another episode of College Basketball Talk. Um, we hope you enjoyed it, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I think we've pretty much wrapped everything up here. We'll be back next week. A uh, West Division review is what you'll have in store. And probably some other stuff too. But uh, you'll know next week. You'll know when we know. But until then, don't forget to play ball. <laughs>